It was heartbreaking. I didn't know that such evil could exist in the world. I didn't know that human beings could do those things to each other. So I had to confront the traffickers. You know, I had to go find this guy in Bosnia. So I decided I was just going to show up at his、uh, brothel, and I did. He was a terrifying character, but. We got in. We went in, photographed him, and then as we wanted to leave, we really wanted to get out of there. But he made us sit down and have lunch with him, <laughs> and、uh, with with guys with <laughs> with machine guns standing behind us, and it was the worst meal of my entire life. Jody Cobb, welcome to Viewfinders Podcast. How are you? Great, thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me to be part of this. Uh, you're so welcome,、uh, and thanks for coming on.、Um, I really admire photojournalists, your curiosity and courage. I think you make really good guests for this show.、Um, I spoke with Jim Richardson a couple of years ago, and we've kept in touch. And he said to say hi, and that he's an admirer. So you don't get much better、Aww. praise than that. So that's the I think the best <laughs> introduction I can give you. But yeah, you've you've been really busy. It's been hard for us to get together. So what kind of things have been keeping you busy recently? Oh well,、uh, I'm actually working on my retrospective book, so that's that's taking a lot of time and energy. And my archives, trying to go through forty years of photographs, which is not easy, and and quite a bit of travel too.、Mm-hmm. And so, do you have to trawl through everything?、Um, and how is that process? Do you do that alone or with a publisher or something? I'm doing it on my own right now.、Um, National Geographic、uh, has physical possession of my transparencies for all those years, so I have to、um, work it out with them to go see the images and to go, you know. Get actual physical possession of the transparencies,、okay. and then have the scans made. It's tedious. Yeah, tedious. I can imagine. But any exciting discoveries? Things that you'd forgotten?、Uh, I've forgotten all of it. <laughs> <laughs> they're all exciting、uh, discoveries, but mostly they're very disappointing for <laughs> discoveries. I remembered myself as being a much better photographer. <laughs> I know what you mean. I've had that experience、um, where you think, "Well, I, this, I, this was a good job. I'll go look through these," and it wasn't as good as you remembered. But、um, okay, let's go back then. That's what you're up to now. I read on your website that before you were twelve, you'd circled the globe. So tell me about your childhood. You, you grew up in Iran. Yes, my father was with Texaco. And、um, he was an engineer with them. And、uh, when I was in third grade, he came home and said, "We're moving to Iran." So <laughs> we looked it up on a map, and uh, <laughs> um, then took some,、uh, went there very quickly, and lived there for five years, and come back and forth to Iran. And in those days, the travel was we traveled by ocean liner. So we'd cross the、wow. Atlantic by ocean liner, and then the Pacific by the old Pan Am clippers, the、uh, wow. those great old planes. And so, so I went around the world essentially twice before I was twelve. And we'd we'd spend weeks traveling along the way. So I visited about fifteen countries before I was twelve, and、mm-hmm. um, I saw for myself how how big and diverse the world was, and、um, It was really quite an Iran. I mean, growing up in Iran on a desert island with nothing but the refinery was an astonishing、uh, childhood. Were you living then in like a compound kind of thing、um, with the oil company or something like that? Yeah, it was a、um, the 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 Iranians brought in a consortium of international、um, oil people. After the uh, they threw uh, after they nationalized the oil、uh, fields in the early fifties, and so they brought in the consortium:、um, British, Dutch, French, German, Scots. I had a Scottish、mm. headmaster, and、okay. um, uh, uh, so there were about three hundred families 
living together in this compound. Mm. And it was it was quite a mix. Obviously, you, you remember that really clearly and the traveling. Did you feel like an outsider in Iran or, or were you in a, in a bubble kind of thing? Oh, total outsider in the, the whole mm-hmm. experience. I just saw the, I saw the whole world through the lens of an outsider. You know, I, I saw everything and I understood nothing. I knew nothing mm-hmm. about all these cultures that I was seeing. And we ticked all the tourist boxes, you know, the Taj Mahal, the Eiffel Tower, Buckingham Palace, all those things. Um, but, but to, I just did not understand much. And then as you say, Living in in the bubble in Iran was um, sort of a stranger in a strange land experience. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that's what spurred my interest in in what I do now uh, was that trying to understand all the things that I had seen as a kid and had no idea what they were. Mm-hmm. And I think I was sort of driven by that to understand. Mm-hmm. But were you aware then that you were seeing a lot? Do you, I mean, obviously it's unusual probably for a child to travel that much at, at that age. And although you hadn't understood maybe what everything meant, you were aware that you, you were going around and seeing a lot of different cultures and different influences and whatnot. It was extraordinary. I mean, nobody, nobody traveled back then. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. Americans did not travel very much at all. And it was not that long after the war, you know, really, uh, after World War II. It was, you know, 10 years or more. But still, the effects were visible everywhere. And Americans were, they were not normal. They were not, people weren't used to seeing Americans like they are now. You know, everybody Mm -hmm. has an eye-rolling experience about Americans (laughs) at this point. (laughs) And their opinions, their own strong opinions all over the world about, about Americans. But back then... You know, they they just had never met one, so it was something really special, you know, mm-hmm. when we traveled to be an American and everybody wanted to talk to us and things. So so that uh, that was, a, a, I think, a magical time. And then, so you moved back to the States around high school time, I rent this somewhere. Right. And so when you got back there, I wondered if you felt somewhat of an outsider as well. Oh, totally. I was a complete... Um, complete outsider. I mean, I knew kind of about the world, but I had no idea how to be an American kid. Mm-hmm. So I just had to, I sort of had to learn everything. And I was, I dressed wrong and I spoke with a British accent and um, I just didn't know any of the popular culture. We had no television or anything, you know, so, so it was, um, it was quite hard uh, when I got back and started in high school. And you know how mean high school kids can be anyway, so... Mm-hmm. It was uh, it was kind of traumatic. I was wondering. I guess what I'm getting at is having that sense of being an outsider and having to communicate through cultural barriers or language barriers or, or different boundaries like that. Do you feel like you developed those skills in childhood? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Of trying to trying to really trying to understand people. You know, and work, working so hard to, to communicate, which when people have grown up in one place all their lives, and maybe, you know, one small town or in a community and things, that that's just a whole level of communication issues that they don't have, um, that I have, mm-hmm. that, was, that, uh, that I had. So in my senior year in high school, I had a journalism course, and my teacher was, had been a top editor at Time magazine. And I don't know how she ended up there, but she was wonderful. And she really encouraged me. And she taught me about journalism. And I was on the yearbook and on the newspaper. And she taught me all those things that I needed to know about it. And then just, you know, sort of lit this fire under me to to continue that. So then I went on to the University of Missouri, because at that time they had the um, the best journalism school in the country. And I, I went there to study journalism because it seemed to me that journalism was going to be my passport back out into that world. 
that I had been in, that I loved so much, because I never felt at home in the States. And and I certainly never felt at home in schools, you know, at, at that age. So I thought I I wanted to get back out into the world that, that that I knew that was actually familiar to me. And I thought journalism was the way to do that. And then the last semester of my senior year in college, I took a photography course. And then it was love at first sight, as it is for right. every photographer that I know, you know, mm-hmm. who started out in black and white, that when you're in the dark room and you're watching the prints develop and, and come up, that you just can't believe what you're seeing. And it was just, it was, I, I had no doubts mm-hmm. at that point after that course that that's what I wanted to do. And so did you do a master's then in photojournalism? Is that right? I did. I did because it was my last semester in college and I was already off on the the train left the station. I went to New York and worked for House and Garden magazine, um, and, which was not a, a great fit. But um, <laughs> there I was, and I was working as a photographer at night. I was photo by all my friends. I was a hippie. It was the hippie days, and I was a hippie, and my I loved music, and music was my driving force, and all my friends were musicians. And um, so I was photographing all the musicians in New York, going to recording sessions and concerts and everything. And so I would... All night long, I would go out with the musicians and um, then, you know, stagger into work at House and Garden <laughs> the next morning after having no sleep. And um, I, after a year of that, I thought, this, this is no, this is no use. I, I'm on the wrong track. I have to go back and, and get a master's and study. And from, for, actually for college graduation, my parents gave me a Nikon. And three months in Europe as a, as a trip, you know, with a URL pass and, and to travel mm-hmm. all over Europe. They were living there at the time. So it was, uh, it worked out well. So, so my brother and I went, went for three months through Europe and I took, I think 20 rolls of film or something. And, uh, mm-hmm. on the way to the airport, I was going back to, I was going back to, uh, back to the States. I had no idea what I was going to do when I got back there and, and the, car on the airport, my dad asked what I wanted to be, what I wanted to do with my future, and I said, I want to be a photographer. I decided right then and there, and um, he blew up. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask how that went down. It did not go down well. Um, <clears throat> his his only experience with, with photographers were the, the photographers who came to photograph his refineries, and they made him carry their equipment around <laughs> And he didn't love it, so he thought it was not. And here's a quote. He said, it's just not ladylike. So I landed in New York. I had no idea what I was going to do. I uh, went to uh, a phone booth, called the dean of journalism school in Missouri and said, can I come back? (laughs) He said, sure, come. So I went back and got a master's. So you've answered a lot of my questions about this part of your journey there. So after you got your master's in photojournalism, you went to newspapers. Yeah, I did a, um, I, my master's project was a commune, a hippie commune in the Ozarks. Uh, so I, I spent all this time living with the hippies um, in a, on a farm. And it was, it was formative. <laughs> mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. It actually, it, that actually started me off um, in trying to understand culture's that weren't open to the outside world. Right. And so I was just, I, my project was trying to understand why these kids wanted to do this and the children that they were having, um, how they were growing up in the commune. And um, that project got a lot of uh, response. It was published in a few magazines. And Cornell Kappa, who was the director of, uh, or who started the International Center of Photography, uh, came to Missouri and saw the work and offered me a grant to finish it, and then included it in exhibitions in New York, you know that was sort of sort of my start. Right. In 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 that, and then I applied for an internship at National Geographic and was turned down. <laughs> the director of photography said I needed more experience, so right. I went to work for newspapers. Okay, and was that then Robert Gilka? Yes. Yeah, I read again somewhere, I've been doing my research, um, a few years after university, you were offered an assignment by Robert Gilka. 
at National Geographic. So you would you put yourself on his radar, obviously. I had. Um, they they had a thing called. Uh, they still do the Missouri Workshop, the Missouri Photo Workshop. So the the editors of National Geographic and the director of photography would come out every year during this week long uh, workshop. And as a student, I was there, and I met them all, and um, you know immediately started hitting them up for jobs. And um, they kept telling me to go get more experience. So you so you did that then, and and so. What do you think that Robert Gilker or National Geographic had seen in you in your development at that time? Well, they did. I, I worked for three years at newspapers, and then uh, then I got this call um, to if I wanted this trial assignment. They wanted seven photographs for a story that had already been done by another photographer to fill in his story, and it was on the Owens Valley of California about the water situation. And um, I went out there and pretended that it was a Life magazine story of my lifetime and that I just shot at, and um, I worked so hard on that that I came back and they published 30 pages of my own story and with only a couple photographs of the other photographer's story, which I felt bad, but it, it worked out really well. They really liked the work. Okay, that's... That is a big win then. That, that must have been, I'm sorry for the other person, but that's a big win for you, right? Well, it was. But I worked till I, I, till I cried. I mean, I worked so hard. And I'd never been away by myself that long before in my life. And it was incredibly difficult for me. But I thought, well, there was my one geographic assignment. And so it was great. And I gave it my best shot. Mm-hmm. But then assignments kept coming. I immediately got another one and another one and another one after that. You mentioned then about being with the hippie community, that that was your first sneaking into a closed society kind of thing. Well, you didn't say sneaking in, that's what I'm saying. Um, Because one of the threads I was going to pick up on is that's that's been something that you've done a lot of with different closed world or secretive kind of um, societies I wanted to pick up on a few of those things if that's okay a few of those assignments let's go to late 70s China and you were one of the first western photographers to be allowed into China as I understand it can you lay out what that assignment was and some of the challenges around that? Well, it was, uh, it was to cross China by train from Beijing to over to the Burma border and then down to the uh, Vietnam border and back. And it took two months, and it was a 7,000-mile trip. And I had no one to talk to but my minder from the Chinese government. I couldn't go anywhere by myself. They monitored every bite I took and every word I said and every place I went, um, every photograph I took. And um, there were no phones or faxes or anything then. So it was a, it was really a uh, really challenging in that sense. And it was film. So I had to carry all my film with me. I had 400 wow. rolls of film in a bag, uh, yeah. <laughs> trying not to lose it and not knowing if my cameras were working and... Um, anything. It was just, it was in a, in a vacuum. But I found a place that was completely frozen in time. No, the Chinese had never seen a Westerner before mm-hmm. in the places where I was. And people would fall off their bicycles right. when they saw me. And babies would burst out crying because <laughs> they thought I was a ghost. <laughs> so, and everything in every village, every town came to a complete stop when they saw me and then just crowds would gather mm-hmm. as far as you could see. So it was, it was challenging in that regard too. Um, it was not easy to, again, mm-hmm. I was a complete outsider, um, and could not make contact with the people. They were forbidden to talk to me by the government. So, um, it was, it was mm-hmm. a, a, a big challenge, but it was so interesting. But again, it was like seeing everything and not knowing what I was looking at. You know, I just didn't mm-hmm. know what was going on. And everything that I wanted to photograph, the, the minders said no. So, um, so there mm-hmm. was that too. So it was, it was a real challenge. Yeah. I, I was thinking if you're going to do photojournalism, but you're drawing a crowd, you're, that's, you, how, you can't really, those two things don't go together. 
but I read somewhere that there was a process of winning over your escort to help get traction with or get some favor to maybe get some more access than you might have otherwise been given. I got her on my side. She was wonderful. And after seven weeks together, um, we really had, um, or two months together, mm-hmm. we, we bonded, even though she spoke okay. very little English, actually. But, you know, I painted her fingernails and we, <laughs> we did girly things. And, um, and so she got really on my side. Um, and so she would have the fights with the uh, local, local government people whose job it was mm-hmm. to keep me from doing anything. So she really became an advocate for me. So in that regard, it was really um, more successful than it would have been. And I also learned the value of, uh, of interpreters and, uh, and the people who help you, the fixers. You live and die by the fixers and, and getting them on your side and, and enjoying them and having fun with them is so important. Mm-hmm. I read then, well, it sounds like you made a success of that, even though it was very difficult and difficult constraints around that assignment. Um, and But I, I read that then you were kind of galvanized by that that job. You felt like you proved something. What do you feel like that did for your reputation externally, but also internally for your own confidence? Um, can you talk about that a little? Well, I... I f- Felt like I was always having to prove myself to the people at National Geographic that I could do all the things the guys could do. Right. I was the only working woman photographer at that time on staff, mm-hmm. and um, I was trying to uh, do everything that the guys could do. You know, mm-hmm. I got certified as a scuba diver. I was doing aerobatic flying and um, sports and all those things. Um, and so was I was all over the map photographically because uh, I couldn't I felt like I couldn't specialize but I I just had to prove um, I had to prove myself. I I did want to pick up on that because it might be harder for young people to to relate to that that you really were the only girl or one of the only girls doing photography like even back to university were there a lot of girls on that track no i was the i was the only woman in the um in my in the master's program and i was the only woman at both newspapers where i worked Mm -hmm. and then when i went to the geographic i was i was the only woman staff field photographers Mm -hmm. there's you know there have been other women who are photographing there uh but you know it's it's a sort of a definition of what of what actually is a staff field photographer mm-hmm. so there there I, I was the only one there um there were some contract photographers that had started to work there too women who were also doing great things so mm-hmm. so that that was really good too i mean collectively we were all trying to trying to really you know prove it and people yeah people don't realize it now yeah how difficult that was yeah and so i suppose being a woman and in that male-dominated kind of world, you could have that could have been seen as a disadvantage. But I can imagine for you that could have been a real advantage, being able to get close to certain people in certain different ways. Maybe I'm thinking of the uh, this project where you photographed the lives of women in Saudi Arabia. I, I can imagine a man just wouldn't have been able to get that kind of access. Uh, no, no. The, a man would not have even been able to speak to a, to a, a, a woman in Saudi Arabia, let alone photograph her. Mm-hmm. So it was really a unique access, and it was at at that time when I started to realize that not only were, were, was that something that I was really interested in, of getting inside people's lives um, rather than doing these sort of scenery and scenics and all the, the other kinds of photography that National Geographic relied on. But that I that I could get into these worlds that were that were closed to uh, to men completely. Mm-hmm. Another project I wanted to pick up on was uh, the geishas, maybe similar um, hidden world, another one where you would have a unique access or unique point of view. Um, can you talk a little bit about that project with geishas? Yes, I was the first photographer allowed into their world, actually. And it was a long process to do that. I did the A Day in the Life of Japan, 
of those day in the life books mm-hmm. and my 24 hours in Japan was the geisha world and I had one geisha and 24 hours to photograph and I had never seen anything like it in my entire life and I was completely captivated mm-hmm. by the, by that world and um Kodak was a sponsor of the, of the book and Kodak gave me a grant to go back and do to do a whole book on them And um, Geographic was not interested in the project at the time. So I took a leave of absence and and did it all on my own. Mm -hmm. And it took three years, um, six weeks over three, over three, six weeks, six weeks, and six weeks for three, three years, all my vacation time, just in their world, geisha by geisha, day by day, um, just becoming invisible. Speaking, you know, playing charades and said, because I didn't have an interpreter much of the time. Um, so it, it was, it was really difficult, but fascinating. Yeah. We, we were in Japan a few years ago and our guy took us to the, like, there's like one or two streets, I guess you would know better than I do where the geishas. Re- in Kyoto? Yeah. And, and, and Kyoto. Kyoto. Yeah. Um, where they really seem to live, or they they come and go. I don't I don't know exactly, but she she took us to like the street where we could find people, and when this young lady appeared, um, just out of a doorway and and kind of rushed past us, and I have I have a photograph just here, just out of shot here, um, that I took, and but it's completely electrifying. Something so special about those women. Um, what did you learn being around around that culture? Oh yeah, well I did a book. I ended up doing a book, mm-hmm. and then the actual Geographic bought the first serial rights to the book, so then they published it in the magazine when it, when I was finished. So I did a tremendous amount of research, uh, read everything I could on Japanese culture, and what what I wanted to do was understand how the geisha had started, um, what the cultural traditions were, uh, and the the reasons for their um, their uh, community to develop as it did, and how it how it happened, and it was all about the position of women in Japanese society in the traditional sense from 250 years ago when the geisha first started uh, till now, and um, and so I tried to uh, try to uh, ex- explain that and and study it and understand it. Okay, I wanted to just change angle slightly. And talk about photojournalism as a profession rather than uh, the assignments. So, well, that means something to me. Let me unpack it a little. Your assignments, so you're working with the, a magazine, National Geographic. Where did the, I guess when you, got, when you start out, the assignments are given to you. But once you gain some traction and some trust, are you able to have a say in the assignments that you, you go out for? How does that process work? Right. It was after the women of Saudi Arabia that I realized that I, I could actually have a say in what I photographed and I didn't have to wait for assignments and that I could propose my own stories about the things that actually interested me and things that maybe I was uniquely qualified to do. Mm-hmm. And that's what I started doing af- after that. And I um, started, do- I did stories on um, beauty, which took me around the world. It was also about the uh, position of women in um, in their various cultures, and on love, and then the one on twenty uh, first century slavery, mm-hmm. that was um, sort of the most important story that I that I think I had done. Mm-hmm. But those were all my ideas and my projects, okay. and they were um, I pitched them as uh, science stories, because those were those were sort of easy to easier to get approved and get through the process. And then I, I could just photograph the things that I was so fascinated by and wanted to see and wanted to see for myself and wanted to understand how all these traditions had started and um, why, they, why they were happening, the things that people did to their bodies and the way they changed uh, their, their bodies and the lip plates in, um, in the Omo Valley of Ethiopia and the neck rings in Thailand and, and Myanmar and um, the Chinese bound feet, and those traditions that had always fascinated me by as a woman, because they were all about women. Mm-hmm. So by, by doing it as a story on, on the science of beauty and what it means in cultures, I was able to do those explorations. 
And what, and what I found, I mean, one of the really interesting things that came out of that for me was that how all of the permanent changes that people made to their bodies, when they were done for the men, it was made to make them appear stronger and more powerful, like the scarification in Africa and things. But when it was done to the women, um, it was to maim them somehow or to inhibit right. their movements. And that, that was like the, the headline. That was the, that was the big thing that I learned from that, took away from that. Right. I did want to touch on the 21st century slavery story. Um, so when you come up with an idea like that, it's such a big, you know, wide scope to that project. How do you, from an assignment photographer's point of view, how do you break that down into an action plan that you can get started, head in the right direction and start to make photographs from? Does that make sense? Yes, it does completely. I mean, that's what that's what concerned me the most when I proposed the story, and I, I never thought that they would approve it, um, but they did. No one was more surprised than I, so then I had to figure out how to actually uh, get that be in the room where it happens. So um, I, I made a huge list of misery um, of all the places in the world where trafficking exists, which is pretty much everywhere now. Mm-hmm. Um, but the kinds of trafficking that exists, uh, sex slavery, bonded labor, child labor, agriculture, industry, um, illegal adoptions, um, uh, uh, organs, organ selling, all of those things. So I made sort of a big list of everything I could think of on that. And then I found the places where they were the most, um, where they were the worst. And then I tried to figure out how I was going to get there, how I was going to find the people who would open the door for me. Um, and so I started, I uh, made list of all the organizations, the people that would help. And I went to the um, Justice Department here, the International Organization of Migration, the United Nations, um, some religious groups like the International Justice Mission, um, and then all, uh, uh, tried to find all the local NGOs that I could find in all the places. And all my trips around the world at that point were really helpful because I had... Uh, the people I'd worked with and the, the translators and interpreters and guides and things that I'd had all those years, I could contact them in India and China and Africa and those places and um, and ask them what they knew and if they could help me on the ground. So it was, it took, um, it was a year and a half long project and I went to 12 countries and, but it was only 16 weeks in the field and all the rest of that time was sent was spent trying to um, to find out, trying to do the research, mm-hmm. trying to see where it exists, trying to find the people who would open the door for me, and you know get it get it in my camera, mm-hmm. um, and that was that was hard. Yeah, that's a real insight because we see the the moments obviously that you that you photograph, but that without the awareness of how much work has gone into creating the opportunity to witness that moment, I guess. Yeah, the work behind it is astonishing. Mm-hmm. And, oh, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Oh, uh, well, I was going to talk about the emotional toll. For sure, yeah, because I was, that that gallery on your website is quite hard. The, the, one of the first pictures, there's a small boy underneath a vehicle, like, I don't know if he's welding it or something. Um, it just, it looks so incongruous, you know, Um and then there's the lady with a, a large pile of bricks on her head, carrying them uh, on a building site, I guess, and and other other hard hard images. So, yeah, is there um um there's a professional element you want to be in there and do your job, but you're witnessing hard things. How do those things mesh? I cried every day on that story. Um, it was. It was heartbreaking. I, I, I did not know that such things could exist. I didn't know that such evil could exist in the world. Um, I didn't know that human beings could do those things to each other. Um, and so it was eye-opening like that every single day. 
and then to actually be in the in in the, in the rooms. I I remember in Mumbai, on Falkland Road, and the uh, sex workers, and my my guide um, Neha and I would go into the brothels every day, and we'd work and we'd just work and work with the, with the women and making friends with them and you know looking at their lives and things, and then we'd come back out and we'd we'd get in the car and we'd just sit there and weep for a while. We'd just cry. And, um, you know, I suppose it's like a, a emergency workers and the people who, who do that, they know that they have a bigger issue to deal with and, you know, what they're doing is important. And I tried to tell myself that, uh, you know, I mean, I wanted to help every single person that I encountered. I wanted to help every single one. And I knew it was impossible. It was, there was nothing I could do. I mean, how could I rescue that baby from the, from the box? Mm. But I would tell myself that at that time, the readership of National Geographic was 40 million people. And I just kept telling myself, 40 million people are going to, are going to be seeing these pictures. And out of 40 million people, there are going to be people who, who can help, mm-hmm. who can help in real ways. And indeed, that's what happened. I mean, it, it got the biggest readership. Of, the biggest, uh, most response in the history of National Geographic until then, mm. that story. And um, uh, it was FBI agents in the field asking to be trained in trafficking issues and, and, and people sending money to the organizations to help and all those ways. It got, it got, a, it got a real response and it was really, really gratifying. But it, it was hard on a day-by-day basis to, to look at that. And then... Uh, and then I had to photograph the traffickers. It wasn't just the victims, but the traffickers and the saviors that I needed to photograph. So I had to confront the traffickers. Mm-hmm. You know, I had to go find this guy in Bosnia. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to show up on his doorstep. And he, he, right after I photographed him, he was convicted of trafficking 200 women. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was sort of notorious in Bosnia. And so I decided I was just going to show up at his... Uh, brothel and just go there Mm -hmm. and i did i went and i introduced myself said i was from national geographic and and his ego or whatever took over Mm -hmm. i will never understand why he let me do that Mm -hmm. Um, but he did and i photographed him with one of his stuffed tigers in his compound he had he had live bears tigers pit bulls um all these kinds of dangerous animals back there, and I don't know why, and I'd prefer not to think about why. Mm. Um, so he he loved to taunt the media, even though everybody in, or the people in in um, in Bosnia were completely afraid of him. And um, he, you know, a lot of journalists in Bosnia writing about the issue were were killed, and some were injured in car bombs. Um, mm. So it, it was not, it was a terrifying character. But we got in, we went in, photographed him, and then as we wanted to leave, we really wanted to get out of there. But he made us sit down and have lunch with him. <laughs> and uh, with, with guys with, <laughs> with machine guns mm. standing behind us. And it was the worst meal of my entire life. And as we were leaving... Um, he very threateningly told my interpreter that he knew where he lived in Sarajevo. And then he asked me for a donation for his zoo from National Geographic. <laughs> so it just sounds too frightening. So but your skills somehow in, in getting into these closed worlds, you you were the one to get in there. I mean, it's, it's quite remarkable, really, when you, I think tying... Connecting those dots with that outsider eye and that cross-cultural communication skills that you you may have developed earlier in life. Do you feel like that has seen you through all of these closed-world situations? It it feels like a full circle somehow. It it feels like everything I did in my childhood and early career led to actually led to the slavery story, mm-hmm. you know, to the, to, to uncovering all those, those evils and things. Um, but just all the, all the skills and experience and, um, that I had gained and going where people didn't want me, mm-hmm. <laughs> essentially, 
um, at the beginning and then just sort of, you know, making people comfortable with me and um, being able to work. I always pretended I was invisible, and that, I think, got me through a lot. I was wondering, when you're on a big assignment like that then, how do you collaborate with the editor or whoever you're working with at the magazine? Is there like a real-time collaboration where you're bouncing things around or saying, oh, I did this, did that, or is it just like you hand over everything at the end of the at the end of the assignment? Oh, it's a collaboration from beginning to end. Um, they put together these teams: um, the picture editor, um, and the writer, and the photographer, and the writing editor. And we sort of all get together. We meet together, talk about what the story is, how we want to do it, knowing full well that the writer is going to have a completely different approach and different different needs mm-hmm. than the photographer does. Um, but, you know, we have to look like we've been to the same place. <laughs> yeah. Somehow met the same people. But um, but that team works really closely together. And you submit your, you send in your photographs from the field. In the days of film, we just shipped the film back there. And often we wouldn't even see the pictures till we got back, till the story was over. And we relied on the photo editor to uh, tell us if it was working or wasn't working or, you know, what was good and what wasn't. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they would send back Polaroids. Then you'd come back into the field and sit down with a photo editor and go through every picture, every frame, every frame, every roll of film and, you know, look at it and, and... you know, we, we lived and died by, by the photo editors, and they're wonderful there. They are so good, yeah. so professional. So then in the end, it, it would go to layout, and they, the layout editor would um, we'd work closely with the layout editor on, on which pictures we wanted in. And then it went to the editor-in-chief, and then the final decision was, of course, always his or hers. But... They always listened. They listened to the photographers. The photographers were really, really part of the team. I mean, are I saying we're because we're, I'm talking about sort of when I was doing most of my work there, and um, the photographers were always invited into the layout room. Their opinions were solicited, and it, it was a great collaboration. On the craft of photojournalism, just the last point here. I've got a camera and a wide-angle lens. But what do I really need? What else do I need to be a great photojournalist? A brain. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm I'm out then. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think um, I I think you need um, patience, humility, curiosity, empathy, and you need time to spend with the subject and. That might be the end of the list yeah. <laughs> that cool. happened. Yeah, okay. That's it's great to hear. It's great insight. This brings us to around I call double exposure, okay? I'm gonna ask you about one picture of yours that I have a particular interest in and then I'll bounce it back to you to tell me about one of your favorite pictures or experiences from your photography journey, okay? So I just is this is really changing directions, but um you have a photograph that's on the Voyager spacecraft in outer space. <laughs> and I'm quite into space things. So I was interested in how, how that came up and, and like, was that as exciting to you as it is to me? Um, well, that's probably the most, uh, my most unfavorite photograph that I've ever taken. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was so banal. And so ordinary, and it was a woman in West Virginia who was raking leaves in her front yard. Mm-hmm. And um, I just, you know, going through the film, I just over- looked it over. I, I didn't even, you know, consider it as a photograph. So no one was more surprised than I when it was selected to be on the Voyager spacecraft. But there were reasons. Carl Sa- it was Carl Sagan's um, project. And the reasons were that they, he felt that it said a lot about the seasons and um, and how trees work and how leaves change color and drop to the ground and how humans interacted with nature. 
And there were levels and levels and levels of that photograph that I never considered because to me it was just the most boring picture that I had ever taken. Okay. So it's out there in the universe forever. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you said that because I was thinking well, that's not your best picture, but <laughs> I, yeah, I guess it's, I can see why they chose that. But um, how does that feel? Like your picture is maybe, it might be found by an alien one day. Um, it's pretty awe-inspiring. Yeah, I wish I wish it was a different picture. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but I suspect by the time the uh, the aliens find it, um, I I won't be around to take assignments, so <laughs> so it doesn't matter. Yeah. So that's hilarious. Very very fun. Um, yeah, this is a chance for you to talk about your favorite picture if you want to. Uh, I just wonder if there's one picture project, experience, or memory from your photography journey that really stays with you? Oh, I you, you would think I would have one picked out by now, um, but for different reasons. There are different fa- favorites. Mm-hmm. That close-up of the geisha's lips mm-hmm. is one of my favorites for what it meant to me because it opened up a whole world to me. It sort of opened up the rest of my career um, that the, um, that the uh, head of Kodak liked it so much that he gave me the grant to do the Geisha book, mm-hmm. which um, set me on, you know, which made me realize that I could go into these worlds of women and that people would be interested in that I could, I could actually do it. I could make, I could make pictures that people responded to. Um, and that it just, you know, those day in the life books and the geographic that were in those days, it just launched my entire career and my whole way of thinking about things. So I have to say that that picture was probably the uh, the turning point in my life and career, that it led to everything else. Okay. It's it's such a striking picture, like graphically alone. It's, it's just really something to look at. Were you close with that lady or do you remember the actual taking of the picture? Oh, I remember it exactly because it was from the day in the life uh, when I had 24 hours okay. to photograph the geisha. Um, so I was in, in her geisha house and she was getting ready to be made up for the evening. And um, she she stepped out from behind a screen where she was doing her makeup and she just peeked around the corner of the screen. And um, I saw her and at that moment a flash of light of sunlight came into the geisha house and I said oh, please stop you know with my sign language um to stop let me make a few pictures of, of this and then I just you know came in really close on that and um made just made a few frames of that and then um the light which turned out to be reflection from a car window uh, from the windshield of a car mm-hmm driving by that lasted, you know, that long and then went on. The light was gone. The minute, the moment was over. It was just a very, very fleeting picture. And it looks like it, everybody asked me how I, how I lighted it. And <laughs> God, God did the lighting. <laughs> yeah. I know what you mean. It looked, it does look lit, but yeah, but you were in the right place. You had your wits about you. You could see the picture there and that, goes to your instincts and experience so really the credit is with you I think so um, thanks so much Jody. if you have time I have a quick fire round to finish with are you okay for some quick fire questions okay so okay wide angle or telephoto depends mm-hmm. all the best photographers have said that okay colour or black and white colour now Mm-hmm. Always love black and white. Yeah, the the magic that you were talking about earlier with the dark room. There's nothing like that whole process. But I see in color now, and I've, I've all this time I've I've learned to internalize it. It was a hard switch from black and white to color um, when I went from newspapers to the Geographic. Mm-hmm. Expensive lens cloth or the corner of your shirt? <laughs> shirt. Shirt. Okay, of course. Uh, okay, what's a weird thing I could find in your camera bag? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
You know, something crafty, <laughs> something tricky, nobody else would think of, but you always use such um, and such for this purpose. I'm, I'm just trying to think. Chopsticks. Ah, okay, I, that's a new one. So what, why are there chopsticks in there? Well, in, in China, it was unsafe to use the chopsticks they provided. So oh. you couldn't trust that, you know, everything was unsanitary. Oh, okay. And you couldn't, so you carried your own chopsticks. Cool, that's a great answer. Okay. This is a tricky one. Name one photographer that we should all know about, maybe in your field or otherwise, just one great photographer we should check out. Oh, so many, so many. I just don't feel comfortable. They can check out me. There's always me. There's always you, (laughs) yes. So, okay, I don't know if you use emojis on your phone, but do you have a favorite emoji? Crying. Oh, (laughs) crying, laughing or just sad crying? Sad crying and and the um, scream. <laughs> oh, the scream. Okay. Okay. Yes. <laughs> the, the whys of that will remain a mystery. We'll just leave that there. <laughs> Last question. When do you feel at peace with the universe? On the water. By the water. Near the water. It's my Pisces soul. And I found in... Um, after the after the slavery story, I need I re- desperately needed peace in my soul and solace. And I uh, had an s- assignment on Venice, and I started taking these pictures of the reflections on the canals in Venice to calm myself. And I spent way too much time photographing the um, the reflections, and it was often just because my assistant couldn't figure out what I was doing and why I was doing it because they knew that National Geographic would never publish abstracts like that. And the truth was that I was often photographing through tears and I wanted to hide from his gaze. So I would, I would do that for a while till I could collect myself because a lot of things that happened, my mom died. And, you know, all these, all these other things that... Besides the um, slavery story, they, those photographs mean a lot to me now, and there's a lot of them, and I love them. Jody, I feel very privileged to have had this time with you. I'm so grateful, and I wish you all the best. Thank you so, so much. Well, thank you. It was a, it was a privilege to be here. <laughs>